You could have very high medical bills. You could miss work for a long time. You could need counseling. Um, you don't. Not everyone has health insurance, so those costs could fall directly on the crime victim. Uh, and then, in you know, even worst case scenarios, you could have to pay for a funeral and burial. And these things can really add up. Welcome to Voir Dear, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm going to talk to Alicia Santo, who's a reporter at the Marshall Project, about a story she wrote this fall about how some states deny victims compensation to people with criminal records and how those policies hurt communities of color. I like this conversation because it sheds light on a little-known corner of the criminal justice system and raises interesting questions about who gets to be counted as a victim. So here's our conversation. So one of the things I liked about this story and this topic was that it's even for people who do criminal justice work, victims' compensation is not necessarily an area that people talk about a lot. So I thought we should probably start off by just doing a brief overview of what, what victims' comp is. Sure. So victim's compensation is available to victims of crime in order for them to basically get their lives back on track after um, they become a victim. And so um, what a lot of people don't realize is after you become a victim of a crime, there's often a lot of costs that are associated with that. You could have very high medical bills. You could miss work for a long time. You could need counseling. Um, you don't. Not everyone has health insurance, so those costs could fall directly on the crime victim. Uh, and then in you know, even worst case scenarios, you could have to pay for a funeral and burial. And these things can really add up. And so the idea of victim compensation is to leave the victim whole, at least financially, um, so that that burden isn't an additional burden on top of dealing with the trauma of the crime itself. And how and or when did victims compensation come about as a, con- as an, as a policy program? So during the 60s and 70s, there was this sort of backlash to the fact that um, there wasn't enough protection for victims, that victims of crime were left with nothing while the people who perpetrated a crime against them were, you know, given three square meals a day in a bed. And this was sort of um, a movement that went across the country and state by state, they passed their own victim compensation laws. And then in 1984, the federal government passed a law that um, increased, not increased, it uh, provided federal funding for state victim compensation programs. And that basically led to all states having the programs. Is this the kind of thing where, well, so first of all, so you said it's in all states now? It is, yes. Every state has one. So obviously this can't be the case for every state. But is this the kind of thing where... I feel like a lot of these interventions or laws come from like one really bad story that went very public. Is that the case or was this just kind of a slow trickle across the country? Well, I would say just um, the victim compensation program established, just being established itself was a slow trickle in many cases across the country. You know, it kind of just became a thing where, like a lot of laws, like if one state if you has it and, it and other states don't have it and you start to become in the minority of states that don't have it, um, you know, it kind of became a national policy, particularly when the federal government started offering to um, provide 
quite a bit of money based on the state's spending. So, you know, this was just additional free money that states could get to provide for victims. And, um, it, you know, it's during a time, and it, we're still in a time like this, uh, where there's a lot of concern for victims, and I think for, for good reason at times. Um, sometimes it can also be used in, in, in different ways that maybe aren't necessarily right. But um, for this in particular, this was just about not leaving people in a state where they're declaring bankruptcy because they were a victim of a crime, and in, in, in very much it was focused on innocent victims of crime. And that was how some states came to decide that people with criminal records didn't fit that definition. Great. So I feel like we're getting to the place where we'll sort of talk about who counts as a victim. But b- b- but before we even get there, just on the sort of broad overview, where does the money actually come from? Like, is this how, where, yeah, where does the funds for victim compensation funds actually come from? So in the vast majority of states, the funds come from fees tacked on to court is basically court fines and fees. Um, and so in the vast majority of states, there is no taxpayer money that makes up these funds. It's, it's everyday DUIs and even traffic violations. There'll be, you know, a $50 charge, different amounts depending on the state, and that's what, that's what um, constitutes the fund. And how much money are we actually talking about? Like what's, a, what's an average, if you know, what's an average individual payout or how big are the funds generally? It's pretty impossible to say average because I, I wanted to do that for this story, but um, states have different caps, and they all um, – it was just really difficult because state by state is very, very different. So it's kind of a difficult thing to calculate averages because it's also what counts as a claim can be considered differently by a state. So some states might consider every person that applies on behalf of one incident as one claim. Other states might count that as each a separate claim. It becomes so complicated that um, it's not really something that's out there. Um, I can tell you that in 2016, there was uh, more than $348 million distributed in victim compensation money. Okay, so that's not tiny. <laughs> it's not like, right. uh, yeah. So I, yeah, and the caps, you know, and the caps are the caps are anywhere from ten thousand dollars to nearly two hundred thousand dollars, depending on the state. So again, wow. it's just a huge variation. Um, and is that? Well, I guess it. I mean, I, I guess it's going to be the same answer that it really depends on the situation and, and the crime itself. But does that sort of jive with the types of costs that you've seen of being a victim? Like, can you do? You, are there situations where it costs up to two hundred thousand dollars to have been the victim of a crime? Um, I could cost a lot more than that if you are paralyzed, for example. Um, that would if you have a catastrophic injury that you're going to need medical care for the rest of your life. It's probable that your costs are going to go into the millions. Okay, so that all seems like a very logical and justly oriented program. But you mentioned earlier that it's not necessarily implemented in ways that end up being right or fair. So where does this um, where does this go wrong? Well, I would say that the what I wanted to investigate was the ways that having a law that excludes people with criminal history, um, what impact that has and who it impacts. And so that's what I set out to do. And what 
I found was that there are seven states that disqualify people based on a criminal record, and it's for varying periods of time. For example, in North Carolina, it's certain very serious felonies in the past three years, where in Ohio, it's any felony in the past 10 years, or Florida, where it's a a series of of felonies that the least uh, serious being burglary and then going up from there, but for a person's entire lifetime. Um, And so that's what I set out to do. There's other types of laws all around the country that uh, disqualify people who are on probation or parole at the time that they became a victim or people who were convicted during the pendency of their victim compensation claim. I left those out of this analysis and only focused on states where the disqualification comes simply from a previous conviction. And so in those circumstances, just to make sure I understand exactly how it's working, a person who applies for a victim's comp, let's say someone is, is, well, let's take the most extreme version. Let's say someone is murdered um, and they also happen to have a conviction that that disqualifies them. They don't receive any payment out of victim's comp. Is that how it works? That's correct. Even if the person is dead, it doesn't matter if the victim or the person filing a claim on behalf of the victimization, if either person has a disqualifying conviction in their past, they cannot receive the money. Okay. And, I mean, it seems obvious that the problem with that is that people with criminal records or criminal convictions, or I should change the subject of that sentence. Um, Communities of color and poor communities are way more likely to have higher concentrations of folks with convictions because they're more policed. So how does that sort of play out on a disparate impact? Um, You know, how does that, how do these programs disparately impact certain communities? So For the investigation, we really focused on two states, Florida and Ohio. Um, And and what we're able to see is that um, we were able to compare the race of the applicants with the race of people who were disqualified for a a previous criminal conviction. So in Ohio, we could see that 42% of all applicants for help from the victim compensation program were were black crime victims, but 61% of people being denied for a previous felony were black. And then in in um in Florida, the the statistics were even a little bit more stark. It was 30% of applicants were black crime victims and and again 60% of denials were going to black crime victims or their family members. So that's interesting. So it's not just, it sounds like what you're describing is that it's not just the victims themselves, but their families that also suffer from this. Like, so if, if someone is murdered and their family ends up having to pay for their funeral and all of that, if the person, if the, if the victim had a conviction, it actually ends up burdening the family. That's right. So a lot of the Victims I spoke to um, for this story were were actually not the direct victims themselves. It was their loved one that was murdered, um, and then when they went to get help, um, they were in, deemed ineligible because their loved one had a criminal history. So I could just talk about one of those people. Um, great. That was my next we, question. <laughs> sure. Um, so we wrote about um, one man named Anthony Campbell. Um, his uh, dad was murdered, and 
2015, and um, he applied for help with uh, funeral and burial costs because it was $10,000, and it cost quite a bit, and, you know, he didn't have the money up front to pay for it. So he was denied because um, his dad had been convicted of a burglary in 1983 um, after a late-night break-in attempt at a local business, um, and so... Uh, Anthony Campbell was unable to get any money from the state in order to help him with these costs that he was incurring. And because of that, his dad's gravestone, his dad's grave remained unmarked for a number of years as he continued making payments because the company would not place the headstone until he had completely paid off the bill. And that was very heartbreaking for him and his family. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, I guess what gets me about about that story as well is is these sort of stark ideas of of innocence and victimhood versus sort of like guilt and and not an undeservingness and that the these policies draw such a stark line between the two mm-hmm. I mean, the implication is that you're not an innocent victim because you've been convicted of something in the past, regardless of whether the victimization that you or your family member experienced had absolutely nothing to do with that thing that happened 32 years ago. I mean, there's no connection, but the law implies a connection, in my opinion. Yeah, no, totally. Um, So I'm curious if you had, I know that you had to sort of limit your analysis to the states that had very clear-cut rules about you know, just flat out denying compensation to people with con- with convictions. But I understand that there's kind of a spectrum beyond those, was it 10 states that you looked at, that small number of states that you were able to analyze? What does the spectrum look like beyond those 10 states? I mean, does everyone else do it well, or, or where's the... Hmm. What is I didn't. Like? Well, because it's so difficult to analyze victim compensation outcomes. I didn't. I didn't analyze mm-hmm. all the states. Um, what I can say is that most states do not have rules like this. So it, it's a it's a small minority of states that um, disqualify people for previous convictions, and most states don't take it into account in their decision at all. That doesn't mean that they don't have other problems. Um, there's a lot of issues in uh, disqualifications for victim compensation and the legitimacy of those disqualifications. Um, but that wasn't something that I, I focused my reporting on. Got it. Is there anything about these states, you said they're in the minority, is there anything about these states, do they have something in common? Like, why do you think it evolved to be this way in those states? Well, it's not clear why they're not regionally um, sort of concentrated. You know, it's uh, it's Louisiana, it's Florida, it's the state of Washington, Ohio, um, Mississippi. Uh, so you know, you got some in the south there, but that's not that's not every, Rhode Island. Um, so they're dispersed around the country. I mean, I can tell you the backstory of one of the states and how it came to be. Um, in Ohio in the late 1970s, uh, a sort of reputed mobster was killed when he went to his car, and there was a car bomb under underneath his car. Um, and his wife applied to the Victim Compensation Fund, and she she received the maximum payout, which is $50,000. And it was a really big scandal. 
and um, a few lawmakers sued to get the money back, and it, it was it was kind of a, a news story. And by the early 1980s, Ohio passed the law that they still have to this day, um, which disqualifies people with either a felony conviction or a preponderance of evidence that they committed a felony in the previous 10 years. And that's because the person, John Nardi, who had been killed by the car bomb, um, he actually hadn't been convicted of a felony. So in order to cover all the bases, they also put in preponderance of evidence. So in my reporting, there were also people I spoke to who actually were not convicted of the felony that disqualified them. Wow. And who's making that determination? It's just, who's making the preponderance determination? It's just the, the victim's investigators. They don't have a board in Ohio. It's, it's a, it's a uh, section of the attorney general's office. Got it. So I feel like I have a pretty good sense of, of what the problem is and what these programs look like. And it's, it's sort of very clear and succinct, but I get the feeling that there's actually a ton of, 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 back-end work that goes into this that makes it look so clear and succinct. So can you just talk about what the actual investigative undertaking was for this reporting? Sure. So um, this took about a year to put together, um, and that was because the, the, the largest part of that year was spent um, gathering the records. So um, in Ohio, for example, um, I was told that they couldn't produce a, any sort of spreadsheet regarding um, the administration of their program, um, or particularly um, when I was asking about people denied for felony records. Um, we had lawyers get involved. It was a, a long, drawn-out process. Eventually, I found a way to get all the case numbers for every person denied for a previous felony or family member Um and using those case numbers, I asked for every single application and every single denial letter. And then we transcribed all of that and created a database where we could see what the person was applying for help with, um, what the crime was that they were a victim of, um, their race, where they lived. And then we could see in the denial letter what crime that had had disqualified them, what conviction had disqualified them, and what year that was. And so that allowed us to see how much time had passed between conviction and later victimization and what type of conviction people had. Uh, and the most common type of conviction that was disqualifying people was simple drug possession. But it took a very long time to put together because we just we had to do it with paper. Um, and the same in, we had to do with Louisiana, although it was – so in Ohio it was – over 550 records um, in Louisiana. It was uh, a little less than 100, so it was less time-consuming. We also couldn't see what the disqualifying crime was because they didn't include it in the letter um, that they sent, den the denial letter. But, um, um, yeah, so it, 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 we had to do it manually. That's insane. Is that, like, I mean, is that typical for, I mean, I know the Marshall Project is completely dedicated to criminal justice reporting. So, I mean... Around, if you looked around the the newsroom, or like for if for every story that pops up in my newsletter every week or whatever, I mean, is that a typical amount of work that goes into the back end of these stories? It kind of depends on uh, some of our bigger uh, data analysis stories. Um, it's not unusual. Um, we did a story a couple years ago. It's something that I do a lot. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, I really like. I'm really drawn to reporting. Um, 
on areas that have never been covered because they're so difficult to cover. And I feel like that's my mission as a reporter at the Marshall Project is is to do those stories that when you work in a daily newsroom, as I have in the past, you're just not going to get that time to do it. Um, so a couple of years ago, we did a story that we also did manually. Um, this was about... Um, a constellation of jails in Southern California where you can pay a nightly fee comparable to a hotel um, to stay in a better jail. And so we built a database of every person that participated in those programs um, for a period of time and analyzed what types of crimes um, they'd been convicted of, how much they paid, um, just and then, like, amenities that the jail offered. Um, but we had to do that also um, pretty painstakingly. It took us a long time. Well, I feel like that's a pretty good place to end because, as I said, one of the things I loved about this story was that it's not something that everyone had been talking about before. It was it sort of came from the from the data itself. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for taking the time, literally the year it took to do this, but also for th- taking the time to, to chat with me. Thank you so much for your interest. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the full reporting at The Marshall Project. And if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, etc. for us, you can reach us at fordearpodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you are listening on. It really, really helps to spread the word for innovative reporting like this. And in the meantime, I'd like to thank Brooke Hopkins and Anna Wyke from the Criminal Justice Policy Program and Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. Take care.